This morning, we are continuing in our New Year sermon series. We're talking about having a 2020 vision, and we introduced last week that for the first couple months, we really want to focus on three things. One is prayer and praying for three people. And I know that there's been people who've come to me and shared with me, people that they are praying for, and we encourage you to do that. Find three people and be praying for them every day. If you didn't do it that last week, that's okay. You can start today. But work on getting that list of people that you pray for just faithfully, just bringing them into God's presence. Secondly, invite two people. You do not have to invite them to worship. You can invite them, as Pastor David shared, to one of our faith groups. You can invite them to a special event in our church, a way to reach out and to find people who are looking for more in their life. The number one reason why Americans don't go to church is because nobody invites them. People say that if they were invited, they would go. Number three, be open and willing to bring someone. This sometimes is the hardest, but can be the most important. Well, as we look at that, praying and and inviting and bringing people, It's important for us to understand why we pray. What is prayer? Why do we pray? What happens when we pray? Sort of what's the background of all of that in our conversation with God? There's a lot of Bible passages on prayer, but I've chosen a very interesting one this morning that you might not normally think goes along with prayer, but I believe it does. And it's out of the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to read it in a moment. But first, I'd like to give just a bit of background. The book of Revelation is that most mysterious of all books in the Bible. It is a book that is an apocalypse. It's one that is a revealing, uncovering of something that's hidden. It's a nature of literature that was written around the time of the first century that this is our biblical one in which there's a mystery to be told, and it's told in language that's not always easy to understand. It's written by, recorded by a man named John, who's one of the disciples of Jesus, and now he's an old man. He's about 90 AD. The early church is undergoing persecution, and he's alone on the Isle of Patmos, And he tells us he has a vision. And in that vision, he sees all kinds of things. But one of the things he sees that you'll see in our text this morning is not a book, but a scroll. And a scroll is how books used to be written. It was like that, only much larger, big scroll. And what's written is words on both sides of this scroll. And normally a scroll would have a seal on it, but this mysterious scroll has seven seals on it. So if you think about that, with the seven seals, every time a seal is broken, since this book is written on both sides, or the scroll is written on both sides, as it gets peeled back, you see a little bit more each time. You turn it, and you see some on each side. So what happens is this morning, as we read, he will peel back the first four seals. Now, he says in the book of Revelation that He can't find anyone who's worthy to unwrap this scroll or to break those seals, but it becomes Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who raises from the dead, who lived the perfect life, and our Savior himself opens each of these seals on the scroll, 
And John now records for us what he sees. Now people say, is he seeing pictures? Is he, is he seeing words we don't know? But what we do know is each time one of these seals is broken, he sees a little bit more. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. As John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its, order, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another and was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when I heard the fourth, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and behold, I looked, and I saw a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and wild beasts on the earth. Wow, what does that mean? Now, if we were in a Bible study, I would turn to all of you and say, what do you think we just read? But fortunately, this is a sermon and not a Bible study. So I'd like to take some time and hopefully help you understand this. Again, John is an old man on the island, and Christians are being persecuted, and John has this vision. In the vision, he sees these four horses. The thing I want to emphasize is why this ties into prayer is because things were not going well in the first century. The early church was starting to grow, and Nero started to persecute the church. And by the time this book is recorded, Diocletian is on the throne, and he was the most brutal of the first century emperors of persecuting the church. And people wondered, how can this be? How come we can be serving God and our loved ones can literally be put to death for their faith? Now, I know we go through tough times in this world today, but I'm always humbled when I look at the book of Revelation and I think what people were going through who first read this book, there is really nothing we collectively go through that could comprehend or compare to what was happening in the first century. Can we agree on that? No matter how bad things are, no matter how bad things can be in any one of our lives or no matter how much any one of us can be frustrated with something in society, we're not being persecuted as, church, as Christians and literally being taken out and killed. But that happened in the first century. You see, that's also where I want to get into the question of prayer. Prayer is easy when things go our way. When we pray for something and it happens exactly what we're praying for, we feel good about it. And that happens. We talk about answered prayer and sharing that. 
And can't we all admit that if we pray for something and things go well, it makes us feel good, it gives us confidence, and it helps us comprehend and understand why prayer matters. But what happens in our life when we are facing things we don't understand, they don't make sense to us, and we're still told to pray and believe and trust, and it gets very frustrating. Have you not ever been there? I certainly have. I've had times when my parents' health was such that I wanted something different or something was going on in our church or with loved ones, and I was like, God, if you could just at this time just solve this. This is a time for you to show up and do what we're asking, and it doesn't go the way I pray. I remember back when I was new here in Plymouth, I was asked to be a little league coach, and I didn't know anything about baseball. And so David and I decided we would coach this team together, and um, I thought, how am I going to coach these kids? But I was a dad, and I got asked to do it, so I agreed that I would take on that responsibility. And then I remembered Bill Mitchell, who goes to our church, who played minor league baseball. And I thought, Bill will, will help us out some. And so I asked Bill if he would do a clinic for us, and he agreed to do the clinic, and so what he did is he got all of my team together, and we spent a couple hours out on a baseball field, and he taught these kids all kinds of stuff. The purpose really wasn't to teach them. What I was having them do was teach us as coaches stuff to do for the rest of the year. We didn't tell the kids that. We didn't say, hey, your coaches don't have any idea what we're doing, but this guy's really going to teach us. So they thought he was there to teach them, but we were all paying attention watching. The first thing he did when he got all the kids together is he put them at home plate and he said, I want you all to pretend you've just hit a home run and won the game and show me your best run around the bases. So they all did that and I turned to him and I go, why are you doing that? He goes, because everybody knows how to succeed. I've thought about that often. We all know what to do when we succeed. The book of Revelation in chapter 6 is not about when everything's going great and our prayers are being answered the way we want and we're having faith and we're trusting and it's going well. It's written to people who are undergoing persecution and God is not acting the way they want God to act. Losing a loved one in persecution to the Roman Empire makes no sense whatsoever. And as John gets this image it's how do we understand life and prayer with all the mystery and all the reality of what really happens in our life. Hearing what I'm saying? It's easy if we all hit Grand Slam home runs and win the game. It's easy if I pray for my son to get a job and he calls me up and says, hey, Dad, I just got a $200,000 job. It's easy if somebody is laying in the hospital and ill and we go in and we pray and I've got many stories like that where we pray for somebody and they're like, wow, the doctor came back and things are so much better and I'm healed and I'm doing well, Pastor Stan. I'll be back in church next Sunday. Those are, we don't need explanation on those. But how do we face the times in our life when we're invited to have faith and trust and it's not making sense which takes us to the four horses. The first horse that John sees is the white horse. And my suggestion today is that we need to keep our eyes on the white horse. And there's a reason for that. For the first seven centuries of the Christian church, for the first 700 years, Christians always understood that white horse to be Jesus Christ and his word. 
More recently, people have started to say maybe the white horse represents something else. I don't think so. I truly, genuinely believe that what John sees here is Christ in the image of a horse. Verse 2, he says, I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Think of the images here, white, clean and purity as our Savior, of course, is. Lived a life without sin. The bow that he's holding is to shoot forth arrows, and of course, arrows would represent then God's Word that penetrates our life and, and comes into our hearts. If you never had a point where you read a scripture and you go, wow, that really touched me, and man, I need to make a change here. God's Word is powerful and can go forth and make differences, not in our life only, but with everyone and then a crown. The crown that's described here is the Greek word stenophos, which is really a wreath. It signifies the victor's crown. We all see one of those every Patriot's Day. Actually, you see a number of them if you turn on the Boston Marathon. Because every single person who wins one of the races, whether it be the men's marathon, the women's marathon, the wheelchair race, they all get one of those exact crowns. It's a victor's crown. It comes from the ancient world. These wreaths, these laurel wreaths that are put on someone's head signifying they are the one who won. And then the scripture says conquering. Conquering is a present active participle. It means it's happening. Conquering and to conquer. That this white horse that goes forth is victorious. It's winning. It's speaking out God's word. It's Christ going in front of us. It's winning the battle and winning the war. But the problem is we need to keep our eyes on that white horse and learn to trust. Because there are times in our life where even though, and this was happening for these early Christians, even though they were told Christ was in control and God was on the throne and Jesus was doing his work and Christ had overcome death and you have a relationship with Christ and you will live forever and God is the final authority. They looked out and they said, but, but it doesn't look like that. That's not what I'm seeing. Get the point? The white horse is going forth and winning and having victory. But in the immediate, that's not how it looked. It got me thinking about a good friend of mine, Dick Leckberg. Dick was a saint. And one of the things that I've been privileged as being a pastor, I say the best part of my job is the people I get to know over the years. And Dick Leckberg was an old gentleman in my last church and he was one of many World War II veterans that I was privileged to be pastor of. A couple of years ago, David and I were doing a funeral service over in Kingston. And the gentleman who had passed away was in his mid-90s, and he was a World War II vet. And when it was over, David turned to me and he said, That might be it, Dad. I said, Yeah, I think so. He said, you've conducted so many funerals for World War II vets. That may be the last time you have the opportunity to do that. And I realized how influential some World War II vets have been in my life. Guys who were there on D-Day. Guys who were in the Pacific. 
men who were far away from home and had lost a lot of friends and came home and maybe a lot of the World War II veterans weren't overly talkative, but as their pastor, I've had a lot of really great conversations about what they went through and what their life was like. And Dick was one who, in particular, his obituary, I was not privileged to do his service because he passed away the year after I came to Plymouth, so I had gotten to know him well when I was his pastor. But his obituary reminds us of some things about him. He died February 24, 2006, and at the time he was 87 years old. He'd worked for the Har Ford Motors up in Worcester, where he was a Ford salesman. He, to his dying day, would only drive a Ford car. But then he was also a major in the U.S. Army, during World War II, he served, and his obituary reminds us, in northern France, Normandy, Central Europe, and the Rhineland. He received both the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart. But then buried somewhere in there is what I used to talk to him about. And that is the fact that he was second lieutenant, and he was there for D-Day plus 20, and the next words, the Battle of the Bulge. And the first day that Dick said that to me, I said, Battle of the Bulge? He goes, yeah, I, I fought in the Battle of the Bulge. I said, that's like one of the most important parts of American history. I'm like, I'm sitting at a, at a table with a guy. His wife had all kinds of health issues, and he was just this awesome guy, retired man. He took care of his wife faithfully. And I said, Dick, could we talk about the Battle of the Bulge? He said, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about it. I said, what was it like? He goes, just like any other day. I said, did you know? Did you know it was the Battle of the Bulge? He said, no, I had no idea. I said, did you know you were winning? He said, no, no, we didn't know if we were winning. We didn't know we were losing. It went on for a few days. It was around Christmas time and was, I think it went December 16th to either Christmas Eve or Christmas. He said it was cold, it was hard. I said, were you scared? He said, yeah, we were scared a lot. I said, was it different? He goes, it wasn't different. I said, what did you do? He said, I had faith that we were going to win. I trusted in the orders that I got, and I did my job every single day. I said, so you are in the most important battle of World War II. This is literally the, t the time in which the Germans are finally defeated. The Allies get to go in, and, and from there on, you can read all about it. They go in, and we take over. We're taking down Germany, and you're in the midst of it, and you don't know if we're winning or losing? He goes, I had no idea if we're winning or losing, Pastor Stan. I just kept my faith and did my job. Hear the point, folks? That's the white horse. We may look like we're losing. We may feel like things aren't going well. We may think that we should be discouraged. We may say God does not seem to be in control, but we're in the battle of the bulge, folks. And we need to learn to focus on that white horse. Because we are not just told that we're American soldiers who are following orders from the Allied command. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And we have a white horse going in front of us that the scripture tells us is going forth 
conquering and to conquer, and we are supposed to follow and keep our eyes on the white horse, but the problem is, and that's what John sees, there are three other horses, and that's what happens in our life. We get ourselves focused on all the other things that are real and are troubling and are bad and are problems, and if we let them be our complete focus and take over, they'll take us down every time. So whether this was written to them, and has a future application, which I certainly know and believe the book of Revelation does, it reminds us no matter what to follow the white horse, to keep our eyes on Christ, to trust his word, and to keep going forward. Because whether or not we feel like the battle's going the way we want it or not, God's still in control. Well, why don't we? Because John didn't just see one horse. We're told then in verses 3 and 4, he sees the red horse. When I opened the second seal, I heard the voice of the living creature saying, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This is about wars and divisions and not just out there, big wars, but in our own life, the battles and the fights and the arguments and the negative things that happen in families and relationships that take us down. Remember, Jesus said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. The scripture here says that they'll slay one another with makaria, which is daggers. People today don't just slay one another with weapons, but we slay one another with the greatest of all weapons, our tongues. We say things that we shouldn't say, we hurt people's feelings, and then we get caught up in all of this negative turmoil and we never get over it. The fight keeps going and we dwell on what they said to us and what I said to them and I didn't mean what I said and they took it the wrong way. Yes, we injure one another with the weapon of our tongues all the time. And we get caught up in the negativity of the battle and are constantly looking at what somebody said to us and hurt us. We're just focusing on that white, red horse and we're not following the white horse. My mom used to say that the battles we get into as human beings and our relationships are like tubes of toothpaste. You take the tube of toothpaste and you shoot out those words and you can never get them back into the tube. So we need to get our eyes back on the white horse. If we have great turmoil in our life and problems, rather than just rehashing it and rehearsing it over and over and dwelling on all of it, get our eyes back on Jesus and his word. And what does he say to us? And he tells us to forgive and to ask for forgiveness and take our part and realize what we've done wrong and love unconditionally. And we get our eyes back on the white horse. We get our eyes back on Jesus. We get our buys back on what we need to be. So no matter what's going on, no matter how much the red horse seems to be galloping through our lives, that's not the reality. The ultimate reality is the white horse, which is Christ, who we need to focus on. And then there's a the black horse. The black horse in our text represents famine and financial problems. We're told in verse 5 and 6, when... He opens a third seal. I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. 
Of course, a pair of scales, we know what that is. That's what was used for measuring in the first century. We do it differently today, but they literally had those scales that, you know, they put a weight on this side and then they would weight things out on the other side. And now what's being weighed out here is wheat and barley. Wheat was the better of the two things. And it says that one quart of wheat would cost a whole day's wages. The life can get so hard, or he was seeing it so hard, that if a person worked all day, all they would have was just enough for a little quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. But then they're also told not to harm the oil and the wine because that's what belonged to the wealthy and the rich and those who were in power. And so not only is this a picture that John is seeing of poverty and people having financial problems, it's also people having financial problems and feeling like they're in an unjust rigged system where they're seeing other people prosper, but they themselves don't know what to do because they can't get ahead. And they look around and they say, but other people seem to be doing okay. Have you never felt like that in life? I think we've all been there where we go through something economically and we just struggle and we get ourselves all upset and all obsessed over it and we can be focused on that and then somehow we start thinking, you know, the whole system is rigged against me anyhow. Our first year of marriage, Regina and I had very little. We came out here to New England just doing all that we could just to sometimes survive because we moved to New England and we actually had to move by UPS. We put all of our goods after we got married in boxes and shipped them out. We couldn't even afford at the time to have a UPS truck. And I remember one day that we were buying dishes. We went to Purity Supreme. How many of you remember Purity Supreme? And they were selling because they had had these dishes. Remember how grocery stores used to have dishes and they would put them on sale? Well, they were at the end of it all. And they were taking all the leftover dishes and they were selling them for $1 for a full place setting. And Regina and I had $10 in our pocket. And we spent an hour in that store trying to decide whether we should buy four place settings or eight place settings. Because what, and I remember saying, well, there's only two of us, but we do have friends who come over to our house. But you know, we have other people who come and visit. Don't we need to have place settings for them? But can we afford to spend the $8? Economic insecurity can really be difficult for us. And financial problems have a way of hitting us all at once in ways that seem incredibly unfair. That same Christmas, we were doing domestic work for people. That meant we were cleaning houses and we cleaned out barns. We did anything we could to to have enough money so we could stay in college or stay in seminary. And we did have family that we could get a hold of, but it wasn't the days in which you could transfer money the way you did with the Internet today. This was the early 80s. And so when we would have to get something, if I had, we had to call up my parents and say, we really are stuck, we need something, we had to wait for a check to arrive. And that didn't really help us in the immediate. And it was Christmas time. And one after another, every single person that we were doing work for all decided that they really didn't want to be bothered having us come in and work for them that Christmas. So all the money that we thought we were earning leading up to Christmas, the wealthiest people on the North Shore of Boston in the most beautiful homes all decided they didn't want to be bothered having somebody come work for them. You know, we continued working in the new year, but it felt kind of unfair. 
And that's what John sees here. There's times when things seem absolutely unfair. But we chose not to get angry and bitter. We learned from the experience and tried to make sure that we treat people differently. We tried to keep our eyes on the white horse. God's in control. We're here for a reason. We're here to study at the seminary. We're not here to be making money. We're not here to be getting wealthy. We're here to love and pray for each other. Regina still reminds me of the day that all we had was a baked potato for dinner and nothing else. But we got through it because we kept focusing on the white horse. And that's what John invites us to do. Keep focusing on the white horse. When life gets tough, whether it's because it's fights and arguments or whether it's financial difficulties, keep our eyes focused on the white horse. Because if all we do is get consumed with that and we become angry and we become bitter, it's going to take us down every time. And then he sees a fourth horse, the pale horse. Verses 7 and 8 said, When I opened, uh, he opened, he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the four living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death and Hades. Death, health. Losing a loved one, there's nothing worse. The pain of having somebody die and say, I'm not going to have them back in this earth. Or the pain of our own health and our own mortality at those moments when we really get scared, where we are waiting for test results and saying, man, this could be a life changer here. And we're asked to pray and we're asked to trust and we're asked to believe and we're with a loved one like my dad with his Alzheimer's seeing it get worse. This is human mortality faced head on. And it was awful for these people who first received this because their loved ones were being martyred for the faith and they themselves didn't know whether or not they were going to die. And health issues and death of loved ones, etc., we've certainly faced here at Faith Community Church this last year. We went through a time in about a month and a half where we had three young people in their early 20s all die. Do we just get angry and bitter and hurt and negative and say, why didn't God save those persons? Or are we able to focus on the white horse? Are we able to focus and trust that God's in control and Christ is in charge, and if we focus on the white horse and see what Jesus is doing and listen to his word, we know that there's more than meets our eye. And it doesn't give us comfort It really doesn't. When I say goodbye to my brother who dies of cancer, I want him back because I love my brother and I want to give him a phone call, but I still put it into perspective and I realize that 100,000 years from now when I'm sitting in heaven with my brother, it's all going to be okay because I'm following the white horse and so did he and praise God, we live forever. But in the midst of it at the time, it's easy to get discouraged. I think this is all about prayer. Because even though saying goodbye isn't any easier, because our love for someone makes it back to where we want it to be, as long as we can keep seeing that Christ is in control and Jesus is the authority and his word is true, it will get us through, folks. It will get us through every single time. Like my friend Dick in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge. So this is not intended to be a negative sermon. This is intended to be a real-life sermon. Life can be difficult. And I think if you look out there, there's a white horse walking around. There it is, a white horse. And that's what I invite us to do. 
Keep your eyes on the white horse. Keep your eyes on the white horse. God's in control. Jesus is our Savior. And God's word can be trusted. And no matter what we face, and no matter what happens, let's keep our eyes on Christ. As we close our service, I invite us to end with our closing hymn. And I also invite you, if there's something you'd like to be prayed for, please come forward as we close and have somebody pray for you. I know that Alona and I will be up here. And sometimes we face tough things and things that concern us. I invite you to come forward for prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace. We thank you that we can trust in you no matter what's going on. We thank you that you are in control, that you are God, and that you are the authority. We thank you that Jesus is the victor and wears the crown. We thank you that your word is true and makes all the difference. And like our brothers and sisters in the first century who first heard this vision, shared to them from John, and John himself who received us, help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We can be going through tough things now where life could be pretty good. But wherever we are, Father, help us to trust in Christ and his word. In his name we pray. Amen.